Exploring the history of cannabis culture, one artifact and interview at a time. This is Canthropology. Presented by the World of Cannabis Museum Project. With your host, World of Cannabis Executive Director, Bobby Black. What's up, Canophiles, and welcome to another edition of Canthropology, the podcast that explores the history of cannabis culture, one artifact and interview at a time. As always, I'm your host, Bobby Black. In the nearly 90 years since cannabis was first outlawed in this country, thousands upon thousands of people have been arrested and imprisoned over this amazing plant, some for growing it, some for selling it, some for transporting it, and some for just possessing it. Now, in most cases, those cannabis crimes were based on profit or personal use. In other cases, the motivations were medical in nature. And in rarer cases, it was to make a political statement or as a means to challenge unjust laws. But of all those countless cases, only a select few stand out as truly historic in terms of their effect on the community, impact on the legal system, grand scale, or opportune timing. And in the case of my guest today, those criteria undoubtedly apply. He's one of the most famous and revered pot POWs in our nation's history. As an activist, he traveled all over the world on a speaking tour with his best friend, legalization icon Jack Herrer. He worked closely with Dennis Perone to help get Proposition 215 passed in California and was the first person to be arrested and charged for operating a medical cannabis garden or collective after it became law. His cannabis farm, Eddie's Medicinal Gardens, eventually spanned up to 40 acres, serviced nearly 4,000 patients, and produced the largest crop of legal medical marijuana ever grown by an individual anywhere in the world. And when that farm was raided, it was the largest cannabis crop seizure in DEA history. Though his garden was technically legal under California law, he ended up serving over eight years in prison. He was released four years ago, and just released from probation this year. Sadly, he's recently announced that he's suffering from an aggressive form of cancer that's spread throughout his body, and as a result is gravely ill. So we're very fortunate and thankful to have him here with us today to tell us his story. Please join me in welcoming to the show High Times 2004 Freedom Fighter of the Year and 2017 Lifetime Achievement Award winner, beloved medical marijuana pioneer and icon, OG Eddie Lepp. Eddie, thanks for joining us today. How are you feeling, my friend? Fine, buddy. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing okay. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Nothing to it. You know that. All right. Well, first off, let me just say uh, it's an honor to have you on. I want to start off by asking you about your, your life uh, when you were, you were younger. Uh, where are you from originally? Originally, I was born in a little town called La Harp, Illinois, down in the southwestern corner of the state on the Mississippi River. And uh, how did you end up in California? Well, my dad was in the Army, and uh, the first couple of years we, you know, were at Fort Hood and Fort Leonard Wood and a couple of places. And then when I was about five, we moved to Colorado and lived with my grandparents for a summer, and then we relocated to Reno, and basically we're in Reno for the next 30 years, and then I've been down in California now for, well, well over half my life. And what was your, what was your family life like? Did you have a good upbringing, or was it, was it tumultuous? A little bit of both, you know, like most families, it was full of love and, you know, we had our ups and downs and were dysfunctional to some extent, (laughs) but, uh, you know, like, like most families, we had a pretty good life. Well, that's good. Um, and then, so I, I know that you, uh, when you were of age, you served in Vietnam in the Vietnam war. Um, what, what service were you in? I was in the army. Were you drafted or did you join? Well, 
my lottery number was 13. <laughs> and my, my brother got in trouble, and they gave him a choice to either go in the military or go to uh, CYA and uh, make a long story short, we ended up enlisting together hoping to learn how to make eyeglasses, and instead, it ended up being what it is. Yeah, and, and how long how long were you over there? Right out one year. You were only in one year? No, I was in Vietnam for one year. Oh, and then were you stationed somewhere else after that? Before and after, yeah. I was, I was in the Army a total of almost three years. Okay, and did you did you sustain any uh, serious injuries while you were in the war? A uh, few minor ones. And what about uh, PTSD? Did you did you suffer from any post traumatic stress disorder after you got home? Yeah, I've been uh, been a hundred percent permanently disabled for about thirty years. Hmm. When did you first discover cannabis? Was it was it uh, did you use cannabis to help you uh, in treating PTSD? Uh, yeah, but I didn't realize that's what I was doing. And uh, I used cannabis for years. And then uh, my dad got real sick and uh, ended up dying from cancer. And I'll never forget at the end of it. This was back, you know, before <coughs> marijuana was socially accepted. And... Uh, he came up at my dad's services, and he told me, he said, Eddie, he said, I don't know what the fuck you did, but he said he went from not being able to eat to in having a six months of a pretty good, fair quality life. And uh, right after that, I, I got involved with Linda Sentai and she had a lifetime history of cancer, and so it just kind of moved into taking care of her. So that's when you first realized that cannabis could be used as a medicine, I'm guessing. And then, so when did cannabis go from being something that you just did as a pastime uh, to something that you were, was a calling that you wanted to devote your life towards? Well, back in the 80s, I met Dennis and I met Jack and uh, was very interested in what they were talking about and uh, got to be friends with them. And after that, I was kind of fucked because you, uh, you can't very well be best friends with Dennis Perone and Jack Herrera and not be a crazy cocksucker that's <laughs> devoted his life to fucking marijuana. <laughs> Well, let, let me let me talk to you a little about that time and about those relationships. Um, I know that you and your wife, Linda, who you mentioned, uh, helped them gather signatures for Proposition 215 back in the 90s. And along that uh, during that time, like you said, you, you met and formed close friendships with mo pretty much all the prominent cannabis activists in California at the time. Um, I'm going to yeah. I'd like to talk a little about some of those people and tell me your recollections of how you met them and what your relationship was like. Uh, Dennis Perone, how did you meet him and, and how did that develop? My daughter, Chrissy, has always had a very compassionate side. And she met this young man, Chase, who unfortunately has left us many years ago. <clears throat> but he was one of the first full-blown AIDS cases in uh, the state of California. And so I got to go down to Dennis's when he was on Church Street. And I had met him. I knew who he was and everything. But through the relationship with this kid, I ended up being real close to him. And our friendship just grew for the next 20, 25 years. And you were also, uh, you also knew Dr. Todd McAria as well, right? I'm actually very, very involved in Mr. McAria's life. Yes, I was. <laughs> My wife, uh, Linda, is the one that came up with the idea of the traveling clinic where we would have the people come to our house and have the doctors come to our house. And, uh, shit, I don't know, we did probably a hundred of those clinics. It was said that 
when the state of California said that they had approximately 100,000 card-carrying members, that Linda and I were personally responsible for over a third of those uh, recommendations. Wow, that's great. Did you know Brownie Mary at all very well? Oh, God. What was she her like? And, her and Linda were best of friends. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> they were they were really good friends. I knew Brownie Mary very well. She was a lovely lady. I just loved her dearly. And of course, uh, as you mentioned, Jack Herr, who you became very close with. I, if I'm not mistaken, you were, guys were best friends for a while. Tell, can you tell me about your relationship uh, with Jack and how you met him? Well, I met Jack, uh, I, I don't even remember where, at a couple of events, and got to know him a little bit. And then as we got closer to, uh, like, 93, 94, 95, when they started really talking about it, uh, really getting busy and getting involved, and that's when Jack and I became real good friends. And then Jack had his... Uh, first uh stroke and for about a year and a half jack didn't know who the fuck i was oh. and, and then uh one day up at uh seattle hemp fest we were at a pre-hemp fest party and i was sitting with my back to the door and my wife said jack just walked in and i jokingly said well i wonder if you'll know who the fuck i am this time <laughs> And the son came right across the lobby or the courtyard, ignored everybody, came right over to my table and sat down. And he says, I couldn't remember who the fuck you were to save my ass. He said, I'm sorry. And it was like we never, never missed a day. Oh, well, that's sweet. But we spent, we spent the last 10 years of Jack's life together. We were on the road probably. I don't know, 200, 250 days a year together. And what was that like being on the road with him? What did you guys do? Uh, obviously, he, doing speaking engagements and things like that, right? Yeah, that's what we did all over the world. So uh, shortly after after the uh, passage of Prop 215 is when you decided oh. to start your your big medical grow, uh, you, you know, uh, Eddie's Medicinal Gardens. Can you tell me about... Uh, how and when you first started to grow, and, and how that de- and how the the story behind how your medicinal gardens developed. Well, I'm actually a fifth. I'm not the fifth generation, but this is my fifth generation of my family that has grown cannabis. Wow! I grew I grew cannabis with my grandfather, my father, me, my daughters, and my grandchildren are all involved in the business. That's amazing. And uh, like I said before, I, I, I realized I was treating myself, but I didn't realize it. You know what I mean? We didn't have the information. And so I used marijuana for years to keep myself from killing myself and didn't realize the advantage. You know what I mean? Yeah. But then as the information started coming out and more became aware, then we realized what was going on. And then when my dad got sick, we kept him alive for quite a while. And then Linda got sick, and hell, I kept Linda alive for over 10 years. Wow, that's amazing. So it was in, was it in 96 that you started the, the gardens? Tell me, about, tell me about Eddie's Medicinal Gardens. Uh, well, Linda, again, was at the heart of that. She uh, had a girlfriend that lived in a, little bitty RV trailer court, right? And she got in trouble with her landlord for trying to grow pot in her little bitty travel trailer. Anyway, I make a long story short, I ended up growing her pot. And the next year, there were 12 or 13 of them. And the next year, there were 30 of them. And the next one, there were 4,000. <laughs> wow. 4,000, huh? Yeah. 4,000 patients or 4,000 plots? 4,000 uh, paid plots. Wow. And so you were, at one point, you had up to like 2,700 patients, I believe, right? Yeah, it was almost 4,000 total patients and, and members of the church. We had certain rules. One, 
you could belong to the church and not have to have anything to do at all with marijuana. But if you did have anything to do with marijuana and you belong to the church, you had to have a current California medical license. And it had to be current through the season that we were working on that year. Otherwise, you could not grow on church property. Yeah. Well, let's t take a step back for a second and let's talk about the church because we didn't really touch on that yet. So it was not just a medicinal, uh, a medical marijuana garden. It was also uh, a ministry. Can you tell us a little about uh, your spiritual beliefs and how the ministry came about? Well, the ministry was one of the greatest loves of my life. It still is. Uh, in my heart, it will always uh, exist and, and be here. But, you know, it was a way to help people uh, help themselves. And so that's how we got involved in the uh, nonprofit aspect of, of the church. But we... Uh, we wanted to make it, I'll put it this way. I never asked these motherfuckers for any favors, Bobby. <laughs> All I ever asked these cocksuckers to, to do was one fucking thing. Treat me the same as you treat everybody else. If you're going to arrest me, arrest every motherfucker with a goddamn cannabis plant or leave me the fuck alone. Yeah. That's all I ever asked was equal treatment or equal protection under the law. And that's still all I'm asking for. <laughs> yeah. So the the ministry was called, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, the Multi-Denominational Ministry of Cannabis and Rastafari. Is that correct? Yep. Yes, it is. And you were the Rastafari minister. Uh, how did you connect with Rastafari? How did, how did, what made you drawn to, be drawn to that religion? Well... It's funny, my whole life, uh, I have experimented and looked into different religions, and I kind of formed my own relationship with God, the Creator, as I understand it to be. And uh, even though I don't talk about my personal philosophy too much, the bottom line was there's four tenets to the, the church. And what we asked was that you tried to live your life as much as you could on a day-to-day -day basis following the four tenets of the church. And they were, first, the truth. No lies in, no lies out. Live your life by the truth. Two was respect all. Respect all of God's creations. Your wife, a rock, a tree, a bird, it don't fucking matter. God made it. Respect the son of a bitch. Third one was hurt none. Look at answer two. If God made it, you can't hurt it, okay? Respect it, don't hurt it. And then the last one is love one another. Try to fucking get along. <laughs> it ain't that big a deal. And that was it. Yeah. I mean, that's the basis of any any good spiritual belief, I would think, regardless of whether it's, you know, Rastafari, Christian, whatever. But you uh, did feel a certain kinship with Rastafari and also with Native oh, American yeah. spirituality also, right? Oh, yeah. Yes, I'm very, I've been involved with the Native Americans since I was a very young child. Uh, I grew up right next to a res. And I uh, was very happy there. had a lot of Native American friends growing up and still have a lot of Native American friends, and they're a very large, important part of my life. Do, do you still go by Reverend Eddie Lepp, or is it just OG Eddie Lepp now? <laughs> Pretty much the OG Eddie. Not doing the reverending as much anymore? Well, it's not that I'm not doing it so much. It's that with the cancer and... All of the other things I've got going on, I've not been able to devote myself to the ministry. And that is one of those things, if I can't give it 110%, I'm not going to get involved. Right, I understand. 
Yeah. So um, getting getting back to the so the grow. Um, so you started your grow in uh, Upper Lake, uh, California, Lake County. Um, right. And that was in the 96, 97 ish. And, and it soon grew, like you said, to almost up to 4,000 patients. Uh, you had about 20 acres, right? Uh, 23, Four, something like 40. that? 40. 40. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I, my numbers are <laughs> outdated, I guess. Um, so you had up to 40 acres, and that was like uh, right off the uh, side of the highway, Highway 20, right? Well, actually, Highway 20 went right through the middle of the land. <laughs> so people driving on the highway could see the, the weed growing on the... Oh, fuck, you could smell it two <laughs> miles away. That's great. Uh, and, you know, so so it's funny because I would imagine that, you know, most people growing back then, even with the passage of Proposition 215, I would imagine most people would try to keep their gardens hidden from authorities and stuff, but you just had it right out there, huh? Well, the thing was, I have never believed, nor do I believe now, nor will I ever believe that I broke any laws in the state of California. Everything I did was completely and totally legal under the state of California's laws. Now, the federal government may take some exception to that, but the bottom fucking line is I didn't break the goddamn law. Yeah, I, I read that you also, uh, you actually had written a letter uh, that you sent to a number of law enforcement organizations, basically laying out exactly what you were doing and asking them if they had any objections, <laughs> and you yeah. sent this out and, and you never heard back, right? Ten years of sending those letters on the first every year, and I never got one reply, except the last year the sheriff re refused uh, delivery and send it back to me. So the way the way the garden worked was you would you would patients would come to you if they had a legitimate uh you know medical recommendation and then you would charge about five hundred dollars per plot and then you would grow their plants for them on that plot and then so technically the plants were theirs the medicine was theirs um and and you ended up with uh something in the order of over thirty thousand plants I believe right. 32,524 in the big garden. Wow. And your garden also, uh, I, I read, that was actually uh, one of the first gardens to ever be held to organic standards, cannabis gardens in California. I am the one that set that standard, yes. I introduced uh, Grokashi uh, to the cannabis industry i introduced market carousel to the cannabis industry i've done all kinds of shit people don't even know i've done dude and not only i mean you you did charge people for the plots but you also gave away a lot of uh, medicine for every patient that paid we put in three or four that didn't i think what we actually ended up at the end and i'm not sure but I think in the end of it all, we ended up with about seven or six or seven hundred people that actually put money in on the garden. And it was right at four thousand that we were able to help. So we did a lot with what what resources we were were given. We did a lot with them. When you first started the garden, did you ever plan or imagine that it would get to the level it did did you was it your goal to treat that many people or did it just kind of happen both <laughs> it was just kind of in the process of happening and i said you know what well I'll, I'll put it this way okay you know how this covid thing is now right yeah well i told my old lady the other day the second I can get that fucking test, I'm getting it. <clears throat> and she says, well, let's wait a few months. And I said, why? I'm dying. Who gives a fuck? If I take the goddamn test and two weeks later, I'm 100% A-OK, -okay, then we know that you guys can all take it and be A-OK. -okay. And that's kind of how I looked at it. You know, was that if I had done it and knew it worked, 
and I knew how well cannabis worked, then I didn't have any trouble doing it for other people. Right on. Well, we need to take a quick commercial break, but please stick around because we'll be right back with more from OG Eddie Lepp here on Canthropology. Thanks to Eddie Lepp, one of the greatest marijuana growers I've ever met in my life. So please give the most amazing, audacious, bodacious round of applause the recipient of the Lester Grinsburg Lifetime Achievement Award. All right. And that was Kyle Cushman on stage at the 2017 uh, High Times Cannabis Cup presenting the Lester Grinspoon Lifetime Achievement Award to my guest today, Mr. Eddie Lepp, who during the late 1990s and early 2000s ran a huge medical marijuana garden in Northern California. Biggest medical garden, I would say, probably in, in history, at least up until that point. Um it still it, is. It still is. Um, yeah, it's the largest. It's the largest individual bust in the history of the DEA. Yeah. And these are direct quotes from the DEA. They said it was the most sophisticated grow they had ever seen. They said they'd never seen anything as organic and as clean and and as well cared for. And. Uh, I believe referred to me as one of the greatest cultivators in the world, if I'm not mistaken. The DEA said that? Sure the fuck did. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I guess that's uh, that's a compliment coming from anybody, but it's kind of uh, odd coming from them. But uh, So let's, uh, since you brought it up, that's uh, obviously the next uh, segue into where we're going next with this, which is that your garden uh, suffered a series of, uh, of busts and raids. Um, I believe the first one was in 1997, uh, but you were, you were acquitted. Can you tell me about what happened in, in 97? I uh, was arrested for uh, growing marijuana for Linda, and I became, at that time, the first person arrested, tried, and acquitted, and the state of California completely under the umbrella of 215. Now, the first major decision was the Trippett decision. And I'm not sure if you know uh, Pebbles or familiar with her at all. I, I'm I'm somewhat familiar with her, yes. Okay, well, she got arrested long time before 215 and was sentenced to prison. And they allowed her to stay out on appeal. And then when 215 passed, they reversed the decision. And that was the decision that allowed you to transport up to two pounds of marijuana legally for uh, medicinal or spiritual reasons. And uh, then there was my case. And then my darling wife, uh, Sandy, about a month, month and a half after I was found innocent, was found innocent of being the very first caregiver charged under completely under the umbrella of 215 to win her case. So we are we're kind of the cutest couple in cannabis, you know. <laughs> well, this is your current wife, Sandy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, my baby. Yeah, um, so so ninety seven, you were acquitted. You were you were essentially you got off, which is great because of Prop two fifteen, right? But then, right. Um, but that was under that was a state bust, right? And that wasn't the feds. Right. So no, that was the state. The next time that you were busted, it was the feds, right? And that was in February two thousand two, I th I believe. Yep, <laughs> I believe it was. Well, what happened in 2002? Tell, give us a little background in on that. In 2002, they came in and cut down the uh, drug czar. I forget who the fuck it was. But he had been in Fresco the week before and had sworn 
that they would not go after anybody with less than 300 plants. And I had 282 plants. And when we came home, they were gone. So they just took and, the plants? Yeah, they, they well, they took five people into custody. But they were all released the next day. So there were never any files charged You were, and you weren't no. arrested? No. Then they came in in 2004, and that was the big one. That's when they got to 32,000. And then they came back five months after that and got another 11,000. And when they took that, they took a pull, two pound, not a one pound, a two pound Ziploc bag full of my fucking seeds. Ooh. That's all right. They missed it. <laughs> and, and that, as you said earlier, was the largest cannabis bust ever in the DEA history. Largest individual. Yeah. They busted, you know, cartels, of course, and shit right. like that. But no, I am the largest individual case they ever prosecuted. And that raid took place on the mo on the morning of August eighteenth, two thousand four, and it, yeah, it was the largest single medical crop seizure in U.S. history, with according to them, an estimated street value of eighteen million dollars. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> now I wanted to ask you. I started working at High Times in 1994, and I know that uh, I remember that in uh, September of uh, 2003, High Times did a big feature uh, on you and your garden, and I think it was Kyle Cushman maybe that did the story, and it was uh, they talked about it being the largest crop of legal medicinal marijuana ever grown in the, anywhere in the world. Do you believe that that the being covered in High Times had anything to do with you getting busted, or or no? Well. I'm sure that you'd have to say, yes, it did. But at the same time, it wouldn't have mattered. I kicked the door off that fucking barn, Hoss. <laughs> then I burnt the fucking barn down. Then I said, now come and look at me in the glaring light of truth, you motherfuckers. So, so you, didn't regret, you didn't regret doing the story. You felt like they were going to find you I sooner or later anyway. It. Bobby, I don't regret a fucking thing I've ever done except when I've lost my temper. Yeah. So you were you were ready for them. You were like, look, this is what I am. This is what I'm doing. Here I am. If you're going to come for me, come for me. Exactly. After I was convicted, they met me in Santa Rosa, the prosecutor and the DEA. And this was after I was convicted. They told me I could only do probation if I would give up the name of the boys that I had run in the garden. And I said, you know the difference between you and me, Dave? Dave said, no, Eddie, what? I said, for the next 10 years, I'll be able to look in the fucking mirror when I save you, prick. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so you were, you were, the bust went down in, in 2004. Uh, and then the case went on, your your case went on for a, a long time, like five years or so, right? You guys were kind of well, delaying and stalling a bit? Yeah, it was uh, 09 before I actually went to prison, <laughs> July of 09. So w were your lawyers stalling uh, or or, you know or was just dragging out? Well, Linda was dying of cancer, so... Oh. And I'll be honest, I don't really think the judge wanted to prosecute. I mean, hell, she let me go to Europe three years in a fucking row. For the for the cannabis cup, you mean? <laughs> yeah, I went three years in a row while I was on federal pretrial hold. Wow. That's pretty uh that's pretty unusual. It's the only one they ever let do in the fucking Ninth Circuit. The only one that it's ever happened for. Wow. That's, that's pretty that's pretty wild so you were facing a pretty insane uh sentence you I think it was four consecutive life sentences and up to 17 million dollars in fines is that right it was uh four life sentences uh an additional 40 years off of two other charges and 17 million dollars in fines all for growing plants unbelievable yeah. 
So, uh, so finally, you did. You finally did have your day in court after, uh, I guess, clo- go- close to five years. Um, I and your trial lasted for like three days, right? Uh, about four hours. Yeah. Oh wow! Now I know you were trying to mount a medical marijuana defense, and you were also trying to mount a religious use defense. Um, can yeah. you tell me a little about that whole situation? That the judge wouldn't allow that, right? No. And that was strange because the way the laws were, it's incumbent on the prosecution to prove least restrictive means. And the Supreme Court ruled that the Controlled Substance Act was not the least restrictive means, which therefore opened me up to the religious defense. And the judge said, well, I accept your religious beliefs. I accept you telling me the truth. But I'm going to let you use it in court. So they weren't. So be, you feel like if if they would have allowed you to to use uh, that defense in the court, it would certainly have uh, affected your sentencing. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And the thing is, is if they would have left me alone, Lake County would be the richest fucking county in this whole goddamn state right now. All right. So you were finally uh, you you mounted your defense. It didn't. Uh, it didn't workout and you were finally convicted in 2007 and you were given a sentence of not thankfully not life sentences and 40 years and all of that you were given a 10-year uh sentence which was the mandatory minimum at the time right uh well yeah but then again that's fucked too because if you look at the sentencing guidelines based on my criminal history I should have never been sentenced to more than 90 months. And I got sentenced to 120. So what were you actually convicted on? What charges? Was it Was it uh, just Manu- growing? or Manufacturing a controlled substance and manufacturing a controlled substance uh, for sales. So you, you were sentenced to 10 years. And how, how much of that sentence did you end up actually serving? I was in federal custody and BOP custody for eight years, six months, and two weeks, approximately, after I was convicted. So I have actually been under the heel of the oppressive neck of the fucking federal government. It was 18 years from start to finish. And and during your time in prison, uh, you... You lost your wife, Linda, and, and Jack Hara passed also, too, while you were in prison, right? Yeah, Jack passed right after I first went in. Linda passed before I went in. Yeah, I lost a lot of people when I was in prison. And also while you were in prison, eight states, including California, the state you were busted in, ended up legalizing cannabis for adult use. Uh, there was marijuana growing over the fence at the prison, dude. <laughs> Really? Yeah. One of our neighbors, you could see his plants right there. I was, I could have walked across the street and petted him. Except if I'd have walked across the street, I'd have got shot. While you were in prison, you, you knew, did you learn and hear about the states that were legalizing? Oh, God, yes. I, I got anywhere from 15 or 20 letters to... Four or five hundred letters a week the whole time I was in prison. Wow, wow! Just from just from I mean friends obviously, but also just I would imagine just just fans, people people who are in the cannabis community who are just showing support, right? Yeah, lots of them. So you were uh, finally released from prison in December 2016, and it was a it was just a month after after Prop 64 was was passed, right? Well, which basically created the legal, you know, market for cannabis here in California. What did it feel like to finally come out and to know that that cannabis had been legalized? Fucked, totally fucked. I hate sixty four. It's the worst fucking thing that ever happened to cannabis. The bill itself, the concept, is tremendous. What they did with that sixty four page piece of shit is ridiculous. That thing could have been written in such a way there would be no problems 
there'd be no bullshit. And yet, because it was written the way it's written, there's been nothing but problems and bullshit. I think I know the answers to the question, but what is the main problem that you have with 64? Is it the regulation? Is it the taxation? Or is it just uh, lay it out for me what, what you what you don't like about it? It's the whole thing. Uh, if you get the Department of Agriculture's uh, dictionary or encyclopedia or whatever you want to call it, and you look up the, the uh, things that they're in charge of, Cannabis Sativa L is theirs, always has been. And it's my personal belief that that's where it should be. A marijuana farmer shouldn't be paying $5,000 for a fucking inspection that a fucking walnut orchard pays $250 for. A cannabis dispensary should not have to pay a quarter of a million dollars for a motherfucking business license that I can go down and get for 15 fucking dollars. Yeah. We are not the golden fucking goose. Yeah, I mean, th- those those fines and those license fees and all that stuff is has been, you know, crippling on the on the market. It's it prevents small small businesses from going into business or staying in business and it favors the the big you know, big capitalist corporation, uh, cannabis companies. Yeah. Well, at, at the very least it is, it's good to know that theoretically more people will not have to face the kind of prison times that you well, did because at least it's, at least people won't be going to prison for it is what I'm saying. Well, yeah. And I'm appreciative of that. Believe me. Like I say, the, the concept in and of itself, uh, I support a hundred percent. I just was not real happy with how it was presented uh, in its written form. I think they could have done a much better job. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm pretty sure Jack would not have supported it. <laughs> oh, yeah, you would have. You bet. You'd have showed up with a fucking gun. <laughs> Yeah, he. I know. I mean, Jack really was supportive of just as lenient and as wide, uh, you know, a legalization as possible. I mean, you know, it's it's just a plan. It's just an herb at the end of the day, really. Yeah, sure is. But uh, you did you did get out thankfully finally in December 2016. I was one of the many people who got to uh, watch you uh, on Facebook Live when you were being picked up and and from from your release, which was which was great. And then since then, um, I I've, I've seen you at lots of uh, cannabis events. Tell us a little about what your life has been like since your release. Uh, you know, right after the release. Well, pretty much, yeah. I just been staying off the radar staying real low key and trying not to get in any more trouble and then a couple months ago they terminated my probation and i plan on being more active uh in the future but with the covid and all this cancer and all this other shit i got going on uh it's kind of hard to be too involved in stuff right now other than my own health yeah well that's certainly understandable i think it's safe to say you've already given more than enough to this cause uh you've been honored uh by a number of people over the years Uh, i know that high times named you freedom fighter of the year in 2004 um there's been a strain named after you which i think it was a third gen family that named the strain after you um that that's been a cannabis cup winning strain and i remember you telling me a few years ago that there was a documentary film being worked on about about your case and your life is that what's the status of that is that still happening uh yeah it actually uh uh, the guy that's doing it uh, called me two days ago and signed up with a production company, and it's moving rapidly along. That's awesome. You know, we're here at the World of Cannabis. Uh, we we are working on putting together uh, again. We've been we've been affected by COVID as well. We haven't been able to move forward with the plans for the museum like we hoped, but uh, we will uh, be pursuing that again next year. But uh, I'm sorry to say we don't. I don't think we have any items in our collection related to you and your life and your case. Uh, 
I was hoping and wondering if if you had any uh, things in your archives or or in your collection that that we could you know try to get a hold of for the museum at some point. I'd be glad to do that for you, Bobby. You know that. Well, thank you. We certainly appreciate that. And uh, you know, I just want to make sure that we keep your legacy and your memory and your story alive in our museum and in all the history projects we do here at World of Cannabis. Thank you. All right. Well, we need to take another quick commercial break, but please stick around because we'll be right back with the conclusion of our interview with OG Eddie Lepp, medical marijuana pioneer and icon here on Canthropology. An excerpt from the song Free Eddie Lep by our friends in Los Marijuanos. Just one example of the massive outpouring of love and support that has been bestowed upon our guest today, uh, Mr. Eddie Lep, both in the past while he was in prison and again now as he faces some very serious health challenges. It was a couple of months ago now that you announced that you'd been diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer that had spread to your lungs and your brain, which is, um, I mean, just terrible news. Can you talk to us a little about what you've been dealing with since the diagnosis? Uh, Well, yesterday I found out I also got cancer in my pelvic uh region oh no but you know i mean it is what it is dude things ain't i'm happy i'm living a good life what a a woman i love that treats me like a king and you know fuck she won't even let me breathe for myself you know what i mean (laughs) are are you in a lot of pain or discomfort on a daily basis oh yeah yeah, that that uh, that cancer down in my groin area. I'm telling you, holy fuck! It keeps me from walking. It takes all the energy out of my legs. Are you? I mean, I know you're taking. You're using cannabis, obviously. For it. are you using cannabis oil or, or for the pain or anything, or or just smoking or no, any other dude, medications? I consume more fucking RSO than everybody you know put together. <laughs> I bet you do. I consume at least four grams a day. Wow. Well, if anybody has the tolerance for it, it would be you, my friend. Yeah. I sleep quite a bit, but it seems to be helping. Been able to gain 15 or 20 pounds and get my weight back up so I'm stronger. So things are going much better than they were in some ways. And I mean, of course, I'm still sick, and of course, we can always use the help. Uh, you know, I've just been so overwhelmed and, and, and so deeply touched by the support that I've gotten. I uh, never did this, Bobby. You know me a long time. Yeah. <clears throat> I never did this to be famous or rich. Yeah. They tell people. And, you know, for these people to come back and treat me like they're treating me and helping like they're helping me is one of the most wonderful things that's ever happened to me in my life. No. Well, you deserve it, my friend. And I know that you had started a a GoFundMe online to help raise some money for your medical costs and stuff. Um, And uh, we're going to definitely put a link for that GoFundMe uh, in in our article and in our podcast so that if people want to help out, they can can donate. How's that GoFundMe doing? Do you know? Well, Sandy does all that stuff. So, you know, I don't know. I got, we made a deal. (coughs) Me and her and my daughter and the deal is I got one job in the whole world and that's to keep breathing and they'll take care of the rest of it 
And so that's pretty much what happens. Yeah. So. Well, I'm so sorry for the pain you're feeling, uh, my friend, and uh, I I hope that uh, you're able to be comfortable and enjoy, you know, however much time you have left on this earth. Uh, none of us know, you know, when our time will be up, but just know that you, and I think you do know, that you are loved and respected and revered in the cannabis community and beyond, and, uh, you know, just uh, just want to send you all my love and respect, and, you know, you are you are truly, I mean, an icon in the cannabis world and a, a, a part of cannabis history. And it's, it's just been an honor to know you and an honor to have you on the show. And, uh, it's just a, just an honor. It's been a real honor to have you in my life. Thank you so much, uh, Eddie, for, I know it's been, it's not easy for you to, you know, talk and, and, and engage like this with, with the pain that you're in. So I appreciate your time. I love you, brother. Here, I love you too, buddy, and thank you for your friendship. You too. Take care. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of Canthropology. I'm so grateful that I got this opportunity to speak with Eddie today. Um, he has sacrificed so much for this cause and for this community. We all owe Eddie a debt of gratitude. Not just the thousands of patients that he helped with his garden, but all of us in the cannabis community. I mean, he took a metaphorical bullet for all of us. You know, he stood up for what he believed in. He put himself out there. He was the first and they came down hard on him. So I think we all owe him our support now when he needs it most. So if you're in a position financially to help out, I urge you to please go to gofundme.com slash Eddie Lepp needs you. That's E-D-D-Y-L-E-P-P-N-E-E-D-S-Y-O-U. And make a small donation to help him and his family with his medical costs. Once again, that's gofundme.com slash Eddie Lepp needs you. So thank you for your generosity and thank you for listening. And I'd also like to thank our media partners, Cannabis Radio and Hayes Radio, as well as Leaf Magazine. To read our blog or for more information about the World of Cannabis Museum project, please visit our website at worldofcannabis.museum. If there's a guest or topic you'd like to hear us cover, or you have an item you think is worthy of inclusion in our museum, you can hit us up on social media or shoot us an email at canthropology at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this show, we invite you to please go ahead and click that subscribe button, leave us a review, share it with your friends, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Since this is our last show of the year, I'd just like to take a moment to wish you all a very happy holiday season, and I hope you'll come back and join us again in the new year for more episodes of Canthropology. Until then, this is Bobby Black, and I am History. <laughs>